once we give in to our own desires, it can feel like there is just no stopping it. This is the LifeSpring Family Audio Bible, and I'm coming to you from Riverside, California. Podcasting since 2004, I'm your OG Godcaster, Steve Webb. This is the daily podcast where we're reading through the entire Bible in a year. This episode is pre-recorded, but we'll be back in a couple of days. Feel free to comment on the show at lifespringmedia.com s12e134 and send in your prayer requests at prayer.lifespringmedia.com. You can email me at steve.lifespring at gmail.com. Our reading today is 2 Samuel chapters 10 through 14, and I'm calling the episode The Runaway Train. Let's get started. 2 Samuel chapter 10 Later the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him. David said, I will express my loyalty to Hanan son of Nahash, just as his father was loyal to me. So David sent his servants with a message expressing sympathy over his father's death. When David's servants entered the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite officials said to their lord Hanan, Do you really think David is trying to honor your father by sending these messengers to express his sympathy? No, David has sent his servants to you to get information about the city and spy on it so they can overthrow it. So Hanan seized David's servants and shaved off half of each one's beard. He cut the lower part of their robes off so that their buttocks were exposed and then sent them away. Messengers told David what had happened, so he summoned them, for the men were thoroughly humiliated. The king said, Stay in Jericho until your beards have grown again, then you may come back. When the Ammonites realized that David was disgusted with them, they sent and hired 20,000 foot soldiers from Aram Beth Rehob and Aram Zobah, in addition to a thousand men from the king of Maacah and 12,000 men from Ishtab. When David heard the news, he sent Joab and the entire army to meet them. The Ammonites marched out and were deployed for battle at the entrance of the city gate, while the men from Aram Zobah, Rehob, Ishtab, and Maacah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle would be fought on two fronts, he chose some of Israel's best men and deployed them against the Arameans. He put his brother Abishai in charge of the rest of the army, and they were deployed against the Ammonites. Joab said, If the Arameans start to overpower me, you come to my rescue. If the Ammonites start to overpower you, I will come to your rescue. Be strong. Let's fight bravely for the sake of our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what he decides is best. So Joab and his men marched out to do battle with the Arameans, and they fled before them. When the Ammonites saw the Arameans flee, they fled before his brother Abishai and went into the city. Joab withdrew from fighting the Ammonites and returned to Jerusalem. When the Arameans realized that they had been defeated by Israel, they consolidated their forces. Then Hadad-Ezer sent for Arameans from beyond the Euphrates River, and they came to Helam. Shabak, the general in command of Hadad-Ezer's army, led them. When David was informed, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan River, and came to Helam. The Arameans deployed their forces against David and fought with him. The Arameans fled before Israel. David killed 700 Aramean charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers. He also struck down Shabak, the general in command of the army, who died there. 
When all the kings who were subject to Hadad-Ezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subjects of Israel. The Arameans were no longer willing to help the Ammonites. 2 Samuel chapter 11 In the spring of the year, at the time when kings normally conduct wars, David sent out Joab with his officers and the entire Israelite army. They defeated the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed behind in Jerusalem. One evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now this woman was very attractive. So David sent someone to inquire about the woman. The messenger said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent some messengers to get her. She came to him, and he had sexual relations with her. Now at that time she was in the process of purifying herself from her menstrual uncleanness. Then she returned to her home. The woman conceived and then sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent a messenger to Joab that said, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked about how Joab and the army were doing and how the campaign was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your home and relax. When Uriah left the palace, the king sent a gift to him. But Uriah stayed at the door of the palace with all the servants of his lord. He did not go down to his house. So they informed David, Uriah has not gone down to his house. So David said to Uriah, Haven't you just arrived from a journey? Why haven't you gone down to your house? Uriah replied to David, The ark and Israel and Judah reside in temporary shelters, and my lord's soldiers are camping in the open field. Should I go to my house to eat and drink and have marital relations with my wife? As surely as you are alive, I will not do this thing. So David said to Uriah, Stay here another day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem both that day and the following one. Then David summoned him. He ate and drank with him and got him drunk. But in the evening he went down to sleep on his bed with the servants of his Lord. He did not go down to his own house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Station Uriah in the thick of the battle, and then withdraw from him so he will be cut down and killed. So, as Joab kept watch on the city, he stationed Uriah at the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. When the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, some of David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent a full battle report to David. He instructed the messenger as follows, When you finish giving the battle report to the king, if the king becomes angry and asks you, Why did you go so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone down on him from the wall, so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so close to the wall? Just say to him, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger departed. When he arrived, he informed David of all the news that Joab had sent with him. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and attacked us in the field, but we forced them to retreat all the way to the door of the city gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is also dead. David said to the messenger, Tell Joab, Don't let this thing upset you. There is no way to anticipate whom the sword will cut down. Press the battle against the city and conquer it. Encourage him with these words. 
When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning passed, David had her brought to his palace. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. But what David had done upset the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 12 So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to David, Nathan said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for a little lamb he had acquired. He raised it, and it grew up alongside him and his children. It used to eat his food, drink from his cup, and sleep in his arms. It was just like a daughter to him. When a traveler arrived at the rich man's home, he did not want to use one of his own sheep or cattle to feed the traveler who had come to visit him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and cooked it for the man who had come to visit him. Then David became very angry at this man. He said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he committed this cold-hearted crime, he must pay for the lamb four times over. Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I chose you to be king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, and put your master's wives into your arms. I also gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that somehow seems insignificant, I would have given you so much more as well. Why have you shown contempt for the word of the Lord by doing evil in my sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and you have taken his wife as your own. You have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. So now the sword will never depart from your house. For you have despised me by taking the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own. This is what the Lord says. I am about to bring disaster on you from inside your own household. Right before your eyes I will take your wives and hand them over to your companion. He will have sexual relations with your wives in broad daylight. Although you have acted in secret, I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. Then David exclaimed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied to David, Yes, and the Lord has forgiven your sin. You are not going to die. Nonetheless, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son who has been born to you will certainly die. Then Nathan went to his home. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and the child became very ill. Then David prayed to God for the child and fasted. He would even go and spend the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood over him and tried to lift him from the ground, but he was unwilling and refused to eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, but the servants of David were afraid to inform him that the child had died, for they said, while the child was still alive, he would not listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He will do himself harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering to one another, he realized that the child was dead. So David asked his servants, Is the child dead? They replied, Yes, he's dead. So David got up from the ground, bathed, put on oil, and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then, when he entered his palace, he requested that food be brought to him, and he ate. His servants said to him, What is this that you have done? While the child was still alive, you fasted and wept. Once the child was dead, you got up and ate food. He replied, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, because I thought, Perhaps the Lord will show pity, and the child will live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? 
Am I able to bring him back? I will go to him, but he cannot return to me. So David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her and had marital relations with her. She gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved the child, and sent word through Nathan the prophet that he should be named Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. So Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal city. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and have captured the water supply of the city. So now assemble the rest of the army and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise I will capture the city, and it will be named for me. So David assembled all the army and went to Rabbah and fought against it and captured it. He took the crown of their king from his head. It was gold, weighed about seventy-five pounds, and held a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. He also took from the city a great deal of plunder. He removed the people who were in it, and made them do hard labor with saws, iron picks, and iron axes, putting them to work at the brick kiln. This was his policy with all the Ammonite cities. Then David and all the army returned to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 13 Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shimea. One day Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you're ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, Now bring my food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her, and since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, Throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then, when her face was in her hands, she went away, crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? 
Well, my sister, keep quiet for now since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Baal Hazor near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. He went to the king and said, My sheep shearers are now at work. Would the king and his servants please come to celebrate the occasion with me? The king replied, No, my son, if we all came, we would be too much of a burden on you. Absalom pressed him, but the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, If you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon? the king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. Absalom told his men, Wait until Amnon gets drunk. Then, at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I am the one who has given the command. Take courage and do it. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. As they were on the way back to Jerusalem, this report reached David. Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Not one is left alive. The king got up, tore his robe, and threw himself on the ground. His advisers also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. But just then Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea, arrived and said, No, don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom has been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. No, my lord the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. Meanwhile, Absalom escaped. Then the watchman on the Jerusalem wall saw a great crowd coming down the hill on the road from the west. He ran to tell the king, I see a crowd of people coming from the Horonaim road along the side of the hill. Look, Jonadab told the king, there they are now. The king's sons are coming, just as I said. They soon arrived, weeping and sobbing, and the king and all his servants wept bitterly with them, and David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talmai, son of Amiad, the king of Geshur. He stayed there in Geshur for three years, and King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with his son Absalom. 2 Samuel chapter 14 Joab realized how much the king longed to see Absalom, so he sent for a woman from Tekoa who had a reputation for great wisdom. He said to her, Pretend you're in mourning. Wear mourning clothes and don't put on lotions. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Then go to the king and tell him the story I'm about to tell you. Then Joab told her what to say. When the woman from Tekoa approached the king, she bowed with her face to the ground in deep respect and cried out, O king, help me. What's the trouble? the king asked. Alas, I am a widow, she replied. My husband is dead. My two sons had a fight out in the field, and since no one was there to stop it, one of them was killed. Now the rest of the family is demanding, Let us have your son. We will execute him for murdering his brother. He doesn't deserve to inherit the family's property. They want to extinguish the only coal I have left, and my husband's name and family will disappear from the face of the earth. Leave it to me, the king told her. Go home, and I'll see to it that no one touches him. Oh, thank you, my lord the king, the woman from Tekoa replied. 
If you are criticized for helping me, let the blame fall on me and on my father's house, and let the king and his throne be innocent. If anyone objects, the king said, bring him to me. I can assure you he will never harm you again. Then she said, Please swear to me by the Lord your God that you won't let anyone take vengeance against my son. I want no more bloodshed. As surely as the Lord lives, he replied, not a hair on your son's head will be disturbed. Please allow me to ask one more thing of my lord the king, she said. Go ahead and speak, he responded. She replied, Why don't you do as much for the people of God as you have promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you have refused to bring home your own banished son. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, He devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from Him. I have come to plead with my Lord the King because people have threatened me. I said to myself, Perhaps the king will listen to me and rescue us from those who would cut us off from the inheritance God has given us. Yes, my lord the king will give us peace of mind again. I know that you are like an angel of God in discerning good from evil. May the Lord your God be with you. I must know one thing, the king replied, and tell me the truth. Yes, my lord the king, she responded. Did Joab put you up to this? And the woman replied, My lord the king, how can I deny it? Nobody can hide anything from you. Yes, Joab sent me and told me what to say. He did it to place the matter before you in a different light. But you are as wise as an angel of God, and you understand everything that happens among us. So the king sent for Joab and told him, All right, go and bring back the young man Absalom. Joab bowed his face to the ground in deep respect and said, At last I know that I have gained your approval, my lord the king, for you have granted me this request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king gave this order, Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. He cut his hair only once a year, and then only because it was so heavy. When he weighed it out, it came to five pounds. He had three sons and one daughter. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she was very beautiful. Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years, but he never got to see the king. Then Absalom sent for Joab to ask him to intercede for him, but Joab refused to come. Absalom sent for him a second time, but again Joab refused to come. So Absalom said to his servants, Go and set fire to Joab's barley field, the field next to mine. So they set his field on fire, as Absalom had commanded. Then Joab came to Absalom at his house and demanded, Why did your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom replied, Because I wanted you to ask the king why he brought me back from Geshur if he didn't intend to see me. I might as well have stayed there. Let me see the king. If he finds me guilty of anything, then let him kill me. So Joab told the king what Absalom had said. Then at last David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. Well, let's talk about chapter 11. In this account, we see how what we might consider to be a small sin can begin a chain of sinful actions that, like a runaway locomotive, can cause terrible destruction and heartache. 
A seemingly small, insignificant sin can quickly spiral into a disastrous web of deceit and horrendous sins that affect the lives of more people than we could ever anticipate. Let's climb on board the sin train with David for a moment and see what happens. As we've seen, David usually goes to war with his armies, but as chapter 11 begins, we see that this year, for some reason, David decided to send Joab and the army out while he stayed behind in the comfort of his palace. This could be considered his first sin if he stayed behind because of laziness or complacency. Next, we see that he seems unable to sleep, so he goes to the palace rooftop and sees a woman bathing. I've got two questions here. Why was he unable to sleep? Is he feeling guilty for not being with his army like he knows he should be? Perhaps. Second question, why in the world is Bathsheba bathing where she can be seen? The train is picking up a little speed here. So what does David do? Instead of averting his eyes, as a married man of God ought to do, he watches her. Sure, it's a natural reaction because most men are undoubtedly attracted by the female form. And since he lingers there, train's picking up speed, since he lingers there, watching the very beautiful, according to the text, Bathsheba, lust gets a hold of David. Now the train is speeding up even more. So David asks who this woman is. You hear that train whistle blowing? I do. The train is going faster and faster. But then a giant red signal light shines on the track. A messenger tells David that this is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Does David stop? No, David runs the red light. Instead of stopping, David sends for Bathsheba. Now the sin train is gathering more speed, and Bathsheba came to David, and they had sex. Notice that there's no word of Bathsheba putting up any resistance. They are both culpable in this whole sequence of events. The train is going faster and faster, and then David finds out that she's pregnant. David knows that he's in trouble, so he calls Uriah back from the battlefield, thinking that Uriah will come home and have sex with Bathsheba. If he did that, there would be the possibility that the father of the baby was Uriah. But Uriah is a better man than David. Can you feel the speed pick up even more? And Uriah refuses the comforts of home while his army brethren are fighting a war, so now David has Uriah placed in a hot zone where he is sure to die in battle. The train is at full speed and headed for a cliff. Notice at this point, David has pulled Joab, his general, into the web of deceit. Joab is forced to become an accessory to murder by sending Uriah into battle and then leaving him there with no backup. The consequences of this chain of events were many, and they could have all been avoided if David had stopped the train at any point along the way. But once we give in to our own desires, it can feel like there is just no stopping it. That's why in several scriptures we're told to flee from sin. At the first sign of temptation, the best advice is to flee from it. Don't try to tough it out. If you're a Star Trek fan, you've no doubt heard the phrase, resistance is futile. Don't play with sin. Flee from it. Had David gone back inside when he first saw Bathsheba, none of this would have happened. Flee from sin. Put as much distance between you and it as you can, as fast as you can. I'd love to hear your comments. Go to the show notes page at lifespringmedia.com slash s12e134 and tell me what you think. Our reading tomorrow is Psalms 57 through 59. 
And after that, I should be back in the studio. Boost! On this date in church history, January 11th, 1741. The first day, or Sunday School Society, is organized in Philadelphia, making it the first interdenominational Sunday school organization in America. In 1824, the group merged with others to form the American Sunday School Union. And on this date in church history, January 11, 1843, Francis Scott Key died. He was, of course, the author of America's National Anthem, and he was a Maryland-born lawyer and poet. He was also among the organizers of the Domestic and Foreign Missionary Society, founded in 1820. Shall we pray? Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. Help us to keep our lives uncomplicated by sin. Help us to stay tender to the prompting of the Holy Spirit as he warns us of trouble ahead. Give us more self-restraint, Lord. As born-again Christians, we are not slaves to sin. We do have a choice. Help us, Lord, to make the right choice. Bless the LifeSpring family, Lord. Thank you for each person that you brought to the show, and may their walk with you be closer because of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Send your prayer requests and praises in at prayer.lifespringmedia.com. Comment on the show at lifespringmedia.com slash S12E134, and I'll read some of your comments on the show when I get back in town on about the 13th. I do want to hear from you. Before I get out of here today, I decided at the last moment that Jimmy Bratcher did a great song that would go along with the uh, study today. This is Dr. Doctor. As always, I'll have a link on the show notes page. Jimmy Bratcher. Until tomorrow, may God bless you richly. Thank you for being here. I'm Steve Webb. Bye. Bye.